Welcome to St. John's Derm Academy Podcasts. This is our new educational initiative for healthcare professionals in dermatology. My name is Ali Paolino. I'm a dermatology registrar and fellow in medical education at St. John's. Derm Academy focuses on providing dermatology education, which is evidence-based and clinically focused. Our work has primarily been concentrated on delivering educational courses, but due to the coronavirus, we've been thinking of new, innovative ways of delivering our educational content. It's our aim that these podcasts will support dermatology education throughout this difficult time. We'll be delivering short 20-minute podcasts. In each episode, we'll be updating you and sharing practical tips on how experts in their field treat specific conditions. I'd like to highlight that the information in our podcasts is aimed at healthcare professionals. It's based on the latest evidence and expert opinion at the time of recording. The advice given in this podcast may not be suitable for every patient, and we'd recommend that any patient listening to the podcast consults their own physician for any medical issues that they may have. For our first episode, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Emma Craythorne about her approach to diagnosing and managing facial hyperpigmentation. Welcome, Dr. Craythorne. Thanks very much for having me. It's very exciting that you're doing this. Well, thank you for sharing your expertise with us. For those of you who don't know Dr. Craythorne, she's a consultant dermatologist at St. John's and she specialises in dermatological and laser surgery and Mohs micrographic surgery. And she leads our confocal microscopy service here. We're going to start this podcast with talking about how we define hyperpigmentation and diagnosing the causes for it. And then we'll be talking through different treatment approaches to certain conditions. So Dr. Craythorne, what does hyperpigmentation represent and what causes it? Okay, sure. So hyperpigmentation is typically when we see an increased amount of pigment on the skin. So it's not necessarily just a a darkening in colour, but it can be a change of the colour also. So you see this increased amount and it can be patchy, it can be defined in one solitary area, or it can be very widespread, covering not just the face, but the rest of the body also. Um, When we look at hyperpigmentation, what we're trying to do, first of all, is establish um, what caused it? Why is that? Um, why is that hyperpigmentation there? Um, and then, second of all, as a laser dermatologist, what I'm most keen to try and discover is whereabouts is the pigment in this hyperpigmentation? Is it in the epidermis? Is it along the dermo-epidermal junction, or is it deep down within the dermis? Or, in fact, is it a mixture of all of them? So, when I'm thinking about hyperpigmentation in the first instance, I'm, I'm trying to go through in my head the surgical sieve almost of of why it's there. Is it there? as a consequence of inflammation so somebody's had something inflammatory like acne or melasma and then you've got the post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation there um, or is it a consequence of trauma so after surgery and um, again you might get further post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation or is it a consequence of sun damage or is it just your genetics or in fact sometimes is there a systemic cause for why you have this so I'm trying to work out what the cause of it is Um, And then once we know what the cause of it is, trying to establish where that pigment is to see how we can target our different treatments that we have. Okay, so when you're first seeing a patient, what helps you decide where that pigment is? Uh, And are there any tools that help you figure out what's going on? Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, um, you can have 
having a look at the skin just in normal daylight is helpful but what is more helpful is being able to look at it with a woods light so using a woods light you'll be able to be pick out exactly whether the the melanin is sitting in the top part of the skin or whether it's deeper down i also have the benefit of having a confocal microscope and using confocal microscopy i'm able to work out if there's pigment and where the pigment is sitting also able to work out is it just pigment or is it a consequence of having more for example melanocytes in the area so it's a, an abundance of melanocytes as well as an abundance of pigment and with the confocal microscope you can see the melanocytes as well as the pigment so that's a particularly helpful thing um, and then if you really don't know and all of these things aren't helping or you're getting a very mixed picture and um, in some cases you can take obviously a biopsy and then you can see where the pigment is or the increased amount of melanocytes are. Okay so talk us through some of the um, most common conditions that you see and manage. Um, well far and away the the largest number of patients that I would see um, are patients who with facial hyperpigmentation that is are patients presenting with melasma. Um, now melasma it, can affect um, about one in 10 women normally. Um, And it's as a consequence of a number of different things. First of all, you have melanocytes that have been sensitized. So that means they may have been sensitized to or hormonal influence. So often patients will have been um, on the oral contraceptive pill or have been pregnant. And that hormonal influence has kind of set off these melanocytes to start producing more and more pigment. So the melanocytes are are unstable. And then secondly, in response to UV damage, these melanocytes start to produce more pigment and seem to become even more unstable. And in fact, it's not even just UV light, it's near infrared. Um, Visible light also um, can also trigger this off. So it's a combination of our hormones um, and UV light. That's why we see it more commonly in women. So that would be probably the number one Thing that I would tend to see. When we see something like melasma, the next thing we're trying to work out is whereabouts in the skin it is. Um, and, you know, is this just in the very surface of the skin or is this a mixed picture and some of it's in the, in the dermis? Sometimes we see melasma, you see, as a consequence of an, well, an iatrogenic cause. So somebody's had what was thought to be sun damage they or they may have had a little bit of epidermal melasma and then they end up getting something like IPL inappropriately um, and this really inflames the skin further and then you get worsening of, of, an, of a new melasma just becomes more obvious then so is there an iatrogenic cause to it that you need to switch off um, so that would be the first and most common thing so melasma the next thing I'd see in terms of hyperpigmentation is actually sun damage. So, you know, I deal with a lot of patients who have seen a bit too much sun for the, you know, the, their entire life and hence why I see them as a moo surgeon to cut out their skin cancers. But often they'll present with multiple layers of patchy hyperpigmentation, solar lentigo. Um, and so sun damage would be the next thing I would see. Then I would see patients with birthmarks, so um, cafe macules, areas of hyperpigmentation, um, and also patients who have nevus of hori, um, which is a dermal um, dermal melanocytosis. Um, I'd see quite a lot of that, and then horis nevus. So they are the t- type of patients that we would see. 
And then sometimes you also get hyperpigmentation as a consequence of uh, drugs that people have taken. Um, so, you know, cumulative exposure to things like amiodarone or minocycline or silver. These things can change the colour of the skin um, to and darken it very different to a melasma type of darkening to the skin and um, darken the skin and um, because of where they're deposited uh, deeper down within the dermis and then my most troublesome thing really um, to see is when patients have been using topical treatments to try and treat hyperpigmentation um, and they present with a condition called ochronosis where you have these kind of um, okra, hence the name, these banana-shaped little um, uh, molecules within the, the dermis and they, the skin looks very, very dark overlying and that's a consequence of overuse of hydroquinone. So that's probably the order in which I would see the number of patients. So melasma, hyperpigmentation from the sun exposure are... Um, birthmarks and then genetics and then things like drugs and ochronosis yeah okay so we've talked a little bit about different diagnoses let's talk about treating one of the most common conditions that we see which is melasma what's your uh, approach to treating this and what's often your first line treatment so um I think the first choice of treatment is really explaining to them. It's actually a consultation is the first choice of treatment because they really do have to understand that the reason why this is triggered and the reason why this progresses is because of exposure to UV radiation. And the most important thing is to ensure that there is complete blockage of, well, as much as can possibly be, of UV radiation on the skin. So it's using a broad spectrum um, SPF. So they need to have one that's at least an SPF 50 and one that's going to have broad spectrum coverage to cover all of UVA wave range. Uh, So um, having something like zinc oxide or titanium dioxide Mm -hmm. as a physical blocker would actually be slightly better. Obviously, some patients don't like the cosmetic appearance of that. But, you know, companies um, make um, compounds that actually are very long lasting for UVA. So um, so sun cream given first thing in the morning to cover the entire face and then also topped up again around lunchtime so I always say you know twice a day um, and also to think about wearing wide brims hats wearing um, little facial buffs to, c- to cover and protect the neck a lot of patients will get um, melasma just on the lower part of their cheeks um, and it's very useful even just having these little buffs that people can wear because if you can you know, physically block it with clothes. That's often sometimes better, but it's the it's the SPF. And then because of the, this, um, we now know that these melanocytes are still stimulated by visible light. So this high energy visible light that will still stimulate the melanocytes. Then it's really important to think about how we can block that. And that's often with um, chemicals that have iron within it. So an easy thing to look for is a tinted sunblock um so instead of putting on one that's white put on one that's tinted and then that's sometimes a bit easier for people who want to wear their physical sunblocks because their skin has a brown tint to it rather than the white tint so that is by far and away the most important thing because no matter what we end up doing to try and treat the skin thereafter um if they aren't doing that, it's just a complete waste of time. So it's about establishing that first and foremost, but that is just general skin care. To actually treat the melasma, 
it's a combination of of a couple of different things it's topical creams and then using low energy fluence nanosecond lasers or q-switched lasers so my approach is typically to use a 4% hydroquinone, often in a triple combination, along with a retinoid um, and a mild steroid. So we have pigmenorm, of having the 4% hydroquinone, 0.5% tretinoin, and then maybe like a 1% hydrocortisone. And that goes on once a day for 12 weeks. And when you put it on it's so important to let your patient know that they will not like using it at the beginning it makes their skin go red it makes their skin go slightly scaly um, and it feels a bit dry and uncomfortable at the very very beginning and um, it's important that they moisturize their skin a lot to reduce the inflammation that they get because obviously inflammation then can drive further pigmentation so um they so they need to be warned of all that so that they don't just get three weeks in and then go, oh, I've had enough of this, I don't want to do this anymore. So they will do that for 12 weeks. Um, and then after that, I will see them to start doing a, a laser program where I see them every two to three weeks. And I use very, very low energies of a Q-switch neodymium YAG laser. Um, and that, that breaks up the pigment very, very, very gently. I wouldn't dream of using any other type of a laser because most of the other lasers are pro-inflammatory and you'll end up causing further inflammation. So that's partly why all of the studies talking about using lasers in melasma have, have really shown non-effect or poor effect. It's because of the wrong choice of laser. Okay. So the best laser really to use is um, one that gives you this low, low energy laser. Um, but my last part really to come to, I suppose, is the thinking about um, the use of tranexamic acid. Um, and this has been shown increasingly to be very, very useful in the treatment of, um, of melasma. And that is what I would add in afterwards. Now, for some patients who don't have the time and commitment to come up for laser, I will start them on the topical treatments and then start on the tranexamic acid just straight away without going on with the laser. Um, but these are all the, the, probably the most effective things then from melasma that we know about at the moment. So in terms of tranexamic acid, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the treatment protocol for this, how effective it is and what you tend to counsel patients for? Yeah, so... Um, well, patients will, will come. First of all, I try and establish whether there's somebody who's going to have a good response to treatment. Um, and those patients who tend not to have a good response to treatment are those patients who have a family history of poor prognosis. Um, there are patients who have had um, multiple treatments in the past, including lasers, and have failed to respond. So I do counsel them that these are the patients as well who may not get as good responses you know the papers would let us know um but typically um used as the kind of layout of the paper patients about 90 percent of patients get an improvement so that's pretty that's pretty good and um, they start off with 500 milligrams and um, i give it to them once a day and i give it to in a short course initially for three months and then i'll extend it um if needs be but I'll typically we'll start off with three months many of my patients have been on it for about a year um now 
the, the important thing is is that some people are concerned about clotting and that was something that was raised from some of the earlier studies but there was a, a study that was then carried out further to look to see um, what the true risk is um, and out of 561 patients um, in the Lee study published in the, the JAD there was only one serious um, event and that was a DVT in one patient who had a familial um history of protein S deficiency so what came out of that was you should just ask your patient um, do they have a family history of clotting um, and that is enough without having to go on to do the formal blood studies so I'll ask everybody is that what they have um, and if they don't then I'll start them off on 500 milligrams once a day but you can give 250 milligrams twice a day it's uh, however you want it to, to go Okay, now specifically regarding melasma, what are your thoughts on chemical peels? Are they helpful and what type would you use? So I haven't used a chemical peel to treat melasma in a long time. I would say probably about about eight or ten years. If you're going to use a chemical peel to treat melasma, it tends to be a trichloroacetic acid peel. You tend to want to have it in a low strength because peels can be quite inflammatory. Um, And if you then set off... you know, if, you use, if you're using high strength and you're setting off inflammation again, then you're probably going to worsen the melasma in the long run. So, the, so if you, you have to use a very superficial peel, and it will be good because it will just you know lift off those very top layers of the skin, and the skin will look good for a bit. But it's not doing anything to address the underlying problem. So, if you're trying to do it just to get a very quick fix then it can be useful. Um, but it's not doing anything to address any level of the under, underlying problem. Um, and if you use peels that are too high in strength, then it's just going to exacerbate the problem. Okay, so are there any over-the-counter treatments that you'd recommend patients use as maintenance therapy that can be helpful? Yeah, so it's a good point because you do get to a point where they're used to putting something on their skin for the 12 weeks in the winter where they um, have been using their hydroquinone and then it's trying to maintain that. Now, obviously, number one is putting on their SPF and making sure that goes on in the winter when it's inside, even if they're beside a window, um, and it's continually reinforcing that point. But there, I mean, there are a number of other things for people to look out for that they could, you know, you can recommend to your patient to use in the meantime. And we know things like licorice root, we know retinol, um, and these are all things they can buy, obviously, over the counter. Niacinamide, up to 4%, we've seen reduces pigment transfer. Uh, the use of soy, which um, can reduce melanosome transfer, but um, not whole soy, because we know that whole soy contains estrogens. Um, vitamin C um, can also be very useful um, at, at uh, improving the pigmentation within the skin. And then um, arbutin. Um, has also been shown to be effective. So these are all things that can potentially just, well, they're sold as cosmeceuticals, but there there is a, a, is a bit of evidence for them. So these are quite good things for patients to use to maintain. I also think it's quite good that pa- um, patients often like to have a routine um, and constantly even having to put something on their skin will then partly remind them to put their sun cream on their skin. So I also yeah. think that... <laughs> Okay, fantastic. So let's just talk about another um, common problem that we see a lot of, which is post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. So for example, if you have a patient who's had acne, what do you tend to use for their post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation? So this is is pretty common actually, and often I'll see patients who are concerned because of areas of post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation when they still have a little bit of ongoing acne. So 
a few useful things are for almost everyone I'll prescribe them adapalene gel to use at night time because that's obviously going to have uh, an effect um, in improving the acne but also will have an effect um, in improving the areas of pigmentation so that is number one for everybody I'll also use azelaic acid um, in the mornings and I'll make sure that I'm using also a salicylic acid um, usually around about a 2% as their facial wash so we'll ask them to use that as a facial wash azelaic acid in the morning and then different gel for almost everyone at um, in the evening and it's partly then having the conversation again with them about this just taking time to settle and explaining the importance of ensuring that their acne is under control because it's the acne that's going to cause more of them in the future so it's trying to give them something that will improve both their acne and the post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation and it really comes down to the adapalene and the azelaic acid. And again, do you give uh, your patients hydroquinone in their setting? Um, for some patients, I'll use hydroquinone, yes. I'll use 4% hydroquinone. Um, mostly in patients who have um, Fitzpatrick phototype skin 5 and 6. And they've had very inflammatory acne uh, or very inflammatory folliculitis. And you know that it's going to take you know at least 18 months you know two years for the the pigment to to remove from the skin uh, so in those patients I'll help to try to speed that up a little bit with um with four percent hydroquinone but I don't use lasers in these patients um I don't use lasers in the same way that I would do for melasma partly because this has all been generated from pure inflammation and lasers even the low low energy have a little bit of inflammation to them so I don't tend to for those patients Okay, well, thank you so much for those um, really useful tips. The information you've given us today is so helpful, and I hope our audience found it really helpful too. We've talked about different causes of facial hyperpigmentation and treatment approaches, specifically in melasma and post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation due to acne. Thank you to those of us who've taken the time to listen today. You can find a summary of today's podcast with key learning points on our website, www.stjohnsdermacademy.com under our podcast tab. We'll also be posting links to subsequent episodes on our website. Finally, we'd like to thank our sponsors of Derm Academy, Abvi, Celgene, Lily, Janssen, Novartis, Sanofi and UCB. They've no influence over any of the material produced in these podcasts, but we're really grateful for their educational grants, which help support Derm Academy. Thank you all.